Consequence Podcast Network. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there, some sort of demented creature, surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake to outer space, we are Halloweenies. Happy Halloween, trick or treaters, dreamers, and campers. It's your girl boy. Michael Myers Rothman, and believe it or not, I have one more spooky surprise for you. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was able to get on the horn with the one and only Tom Holland. I don't know if you realize this, but 2020 is the 35th anniversary of his directorial debut. One of our favorite Halloween rewatches, 1985's Fright Night. So, in celebration, I spoke with the Master of Horror about his vampiric classic during a pleasant October afternoon. Together, we sank our teeth into the film's rich pre-production history, the queer subtext that has since led to countless reevaluations, including by our pals of horror queers, the eternal hunkness of Chris Sarandon, and why we feel it's so, so timeless. It's a short one, admittedly. Tom had to attend to something fast, but hey, it's Halloween. We're all game for a bite-sized treat, am I right? Exactly. So enjoy this, and I'll see you on the other side. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. Fright Night. If you love being scared, this could be the night of your life. Hello, Michael. How you doing? Well, I'm okay. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Chicago. Nice, chilly, oh sunny day. Where are you at? I'm in I'm in Studio City in Los Angeles, but I I love Chicago. Yeah, I mean, you filmed one of the more iconic movies here. You know, uh, I, I actually just walked by uh, the location in Lincoln Park. Uh, I go on these long walks now because you know, <laughs> you know, there's not much to do. And uh, I walked right by it, and I was like, like I was looking up above and just kind of in a daydream. And I go. God, you know, that, that apartment looks familiar. And I was like, oh, of course, it's uh, from Child's Play. How about that? That's where Dinah Manoff went out the window. Yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I did my first year of college, my freshman year at Northwestern Theater School. Classic college. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was, I thought it was just great, except when I'd walk to class at like 7 or 8 in the morning in the winter, and I'd, I'd have a scarf across my mouth 
And because of the condensation, it would, be, it would be full of ice from where I'd been breathing by the time I got to class. Oh, yeah. It's exhaustingly cold in Chicago. I'm, I'm actually I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm from Miami, so it's this is my 13th year in Chicago, and I still, I, I mean, I'm never going to get used to it, you know? I love, I love Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I love Florida. I love all of Florida pretty much, too. It's been a while since I've been back. Uh, I guess this whole year I've just been locked into Chicago, but uh, I love Chicago. This is my home now. I just the, the whole area is just it's just filled with treasures. I love it so much. Going, let's go back. Let's talk about Fright Night because uh, you know, why not, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> Fright Night. Welcome to the real Fright Night <laughs> for real. <laughs> My one of my go tos for for the spooky season, but also I think everyone else's. This was your directorial debut, and I always forget about that. And I think a lot of it is because you watch it and it's so confident and it's so assured. And I wondered, you know, going into this movie, did you have any anxieties as, as a first time filmmaker? <laughs> yes, <laughs> like off the charts. I was I was so anxiety struck. I prepped for the, I prepped for that for that movie probably well i mean i probably harder than anything else except for except for writing psycho 2 i took and i storyboarded out the entirety of fright night myself including the dialogue and you know and i i, I remember that it had a great visual uh motif which was vampires so i was constantly looking for a for a way to use the camera to imply the point of view of the of the vampire of Jerry Dandridge, and that's why you have those shots off the roof coming down when when uh, Billy Cole is dumping the body and and putting it in the car after killing the girl in the Dandridge house, mm-hmm. and that's why you have that shot where uh, evil in the alley where after Evil Ed has 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 gotten rid of. Uh, Charlie and Amy, and he's walking away. You have a, another point of view vampire shot off the off the uh, stairway, the metal stairway, down to where he lands, and you hear the footsteps, and the camera comes down and reveals uh, Jerry Dandridge standing there, staring after Evil Ed, and then he walks after him. So I was looking for ways to 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 use the camera to imply Jerry's presence mm-hmm. and i think it was a lot of help with the film i imagine that was pretty singular to that film i've never had as much support on any other movie as i had on fright night and it was it was an amazing uh congruence of factors that helped me there was a great head of production at uh at columbia and of course his name is out of my Edward right now uh but he he gave me they had just finished ghostbusters and they had the best effects team in hollywood which mm-hmm. was richard edlin steve johnson and uh randy cook and there was a great uh, mendoza there was a great uh makeup man and i got the entire makeup and effects crew of, of ghostbusters on my little movie fright night and the reason was that that Columbia wanted to keep them busy and didn't want them to disperse or go on to other movies. <laughs> so they they were they were sort of they were sort of they they gave them as like you know like as a you know it was a, a, a they just gave them the gift of, of Fright Night and I ended up with the best guys in Hollywood and I really didn't know it. 
And I was saved because I'd written all those things, like uh, Jerry dump, jumping off the, the, the banister in the, on the balcony and turning into a bat and coming down and attacking Peter Vincent and Charlie Brewster. But I didn't know how to do it. It was, you know, it was, it was uh, Richard Edmund who came up with the idea of, of uh, going to the, to the shadow on the wall. Which he could, you know, uh, you know, you know, manipulate in terms of. In those days, they drew it; they didn't CGI it. Mm-hmm. But all of all of that was. I just had the best people in Hollywood to work with for the effects, and I was just plain lucky. Just a perfect mentoring experience, and then <laughs> going out of this, it was it was amazing because you had you had that you had uh, I I got a guy named a, a music supervisor named David Shackler. And we went in, and I went through the script with him, and he tried to to design the songs for you know for 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 for, for what was going on in the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the reasons you ended up with that. I had Brad Fidel. Oh yeah, and love I, Fidel. I was in love with Brad because I, that was the, that was I had heard first ele- first electronic gore was the uh, was it the was, Terminator. Uh, the, well, no, it was it was Terminator. Brad Brad had done that, but mm-hmm. before Terminator, there had been the one that uh, that the director of uh, The Exorcist had made. It was it was uh, something of evil. The one about uh, on the on the road with uh, nitroglycerin. In the yes, truck. yes, Sorcerer score Sorcerer. is amazing. So that was, yeah, that was the set. That was the second electronic score that I remember in a movie. And so I tried to get I I got Brad Fidel because I. I just thought that electronic was right for the underscore. And then I got all these songs that were put into a, an album that they released at the time. This was, this was at the moment when, when all of a sudden uh, uh, having a hit song for your, for your theme had become a big selling point <laughs> yeah. in Hollywood. And I, so I, I just, and that was, that was Gary, Gary Lamell set that up at, uh, at Warner Brothers for, for, for Columbia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it was amazing. Everything, everything sort of worked. I had a great unit production manager named Gary Bearowitz, who was, you know, who really, who really made sure that I communicated with the, with every separate department exactly what I wanted, and I had it all storyboarded out, and I knew what the visual set pieces were and what I wanted. I just didn't know how to do it, you know, and so I. I had amazing support. I had two weeks of rehearsals before we even started to shoot Just with the cast. Yeah. And I was incredible. Oh, it was unreal. I've never had that since. You can't get actors to rehearse anymore because you've got to pay them. And no <laughs> studio or, or, you know, a production company is willing to pay them to come in to rehearse. So, you know, you're lucky if you get one, uh, one reading of the script before you start to shoot nowadays. But then... I had two whole weeks, and I was blessed that they were theater actors. Yeah. You had Roddy McDowell and you had Chris Sarandon, who had come out of the theater, both of them, and they loved to rehearse. And so we spent two weeks rehearsing, and I was able to block every scene with the actors, and I was able to find all the various moments, look at subtext, find out where the laughs were. And then before we even started to shoot, I went on to a soundstage and I laid out with, with white masking tape. I laid out the the circumference of the various rooms and the various places where the the action was taking place, 
and I put out a few chairs and things and a few props, and we ran the entire script, and it worked like a play. I mean, it was it was just it was just terrific. And then when we started to shoot, I didn't have to say anything to the actors; they were absolutely wonderful. All the work had been done as far as performance, and then they all came through, and I'd yell action. I also had a great cinematographer, Jan Kieser. I mean, I just I owe a debt a debt of gratitude to everybody who was involved with the, with the movie. Now that's thirty five years ago, and I'd say most of the people I'm talking about are not are not with us any longer. Mm-hmm. Steve Johnson and Randy Cook still are, but a lot of them are gone now, and so I hope they're hearing me up in heaven. They did a wonderful job. Well, they did an excellent, excellent job. You know, you the minute that you you stumble into this film. It's such a realized world, and I think it's so indebted to that process and the fact that, you know, there was so much thought put into all the shot selections, and there's so much thought put into character. I mean, I've, I read that, that you had actually had some of the talent write bios for their own characters so that they would even become I more custom. I had all the talent write bios when we were rehearsing it. Oh, no. And I'll tell you that, <laughs> I got that from I got that from Stella Adler. I, I, you know, I'd been an actor originally, mm-hmm. and so I'd spent most of my life, well, starting in Northwestern Theater School. I was only there for a year and, and then left and went to work. But the, uh, you know, it what if you what you do is you try to figure out who the character is, what the motivations are. You try to figure out every scene, where you're coming from, why you're there what you want and where you're going to go when you're through. And I tried to get that. I tried to get that out of every actor. So they were very clear on that. And then by having them write a bio of the character they were playing, they discovered things about the character that I never would have thought of. Mm -hmm. And none of that stuff consciously goes into, into performance once I say action, but it's all there in the subconscious. Yep. And so much of what you're doing with, with actors when they play a scene is you're looking for subtext. An example of that would be uh, Jerry Dandridge. Yes, he's a vampire and he, he's after Amy, but he's after Amy because she's the love of his life who's been reborn, you know, and, and, and he's, been, he's been meeting her and losing her for a thousand years. And that's never said, mm-hmm. but that's the subtext. That's what that... That's what that painting is yeah. of Amy that uh, that Charlie reacts to. That's a painting of a of a lover of Jerry Dandridge's from 400 years ago that Jerry takes with him everywhere. But here you have Amy reborn. Mm-hmm. The the you know I mean I I thought she was Nina Nina Harker come back from Dracula in the novel. The but that's never said. But you can feel Jerry's attraction and Jerry's love, and it's more. Than just than just a vampire attacking a woman. Oh, totally. It's more than just Jerry, you know, wanting to sink his fangs into his into her neck. Mm-hmm. There, there's really a greater love there than than just drinking blood. And I was looking for that. I was looking for subtext everywhere. Same thing with Psycho too, by the way. 
Oh, absolutely. That's a great segue to what I was going to ask next is the subtext of both films, to be honest with you. Um, but particularly Fright Night, one of the things I've noticed in, in uh, recent retrospectives is it's been dubbed the quintessential queer horror film. And I wanted to ask if that's something that you were aware of or maybe, you know, what's your take on that? Did any of that come up during production? Was it implied? Well, it was it was it was implied. I was very aware of it. I was I was I mean, that's who Evil Ed. That's that scene with Evil Ed and Jerry Dandridge. Yeah. Yep. Please just take my just take my hand, Ed. Just take my hand. They'll never they'll never they'll never hurt you anymore. They'll never burp. They'll never bully you anymore. You know, and and that's you know that yes that that that's there. We've all. We've all had an evil Ed, you know, in, when we were growing up in the back of the fourth grade class mm-hmm. that everybody, you know, poked fun at. They put, in, you know, on the surface, it's because Evil Ed was a was a horror movie fan, uh, but it's it's deeper than that. It's it's in the relationship between Jerry Dandridge and Billy Cole, which has gone on for hundreds of years, and that was a moment. When I did that, nobody got it. Nobody got any reference to. Uh, can you can you say queer these days? I don't know, but yeah, you know the yeah. nobody got the nobody got the queer reference back when the film came out. Mm-hmm. It only has grown over the years. Now you have to remember. Well, you won't remember because you didn't live it because you're younger. <laughs> but the first, I've I've, I've always been. I've always been, I've always admired and loved gay society in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it taught me a lot, really, you know, aesthetically. The, uh, because if, you, if you're working in the business, at least then, I'm sure still now, but there were a lot of gay people around. Back then, it was, it was, it was sort of sub rosa. But in 1979 or 80, the first gay friend of mine died. And then it picked up, uh, you know, the, the number of deaths, and nobody knew what was going on, and I certainly didn't. And it it it, it seemed like a time to to you know to 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 try to help people with whatever the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. Now the the difference between '84 and '87, I think, when I made Child's Play, by '87 they had the 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 AIDS blanket going, mm-hmm. and by '87. It had a name, the, the 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 plague that came out. It was called AIDS. But in 1984, I don't I don't remember, I don't remember anybody having given it a name yet. Now maybe I'm wrong because I was working so hard. I was probably <laughs> not plugged into the news as well as I should be. Yeah. But I was I was I was trying to be sympathetic towards you know towards the, the, the plight of of of, of, hom- of homosexuals. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. I mean, love is love. Yeah. You know, straight or gay. Yeah. So there you go. That's how I felt at the time. But by the time I got to doing Child's Play, it turned into a full-on, you know, uh, I, I counted it up in the early 90s. And I had lost 18 friends or, or close associates with work. I'd lost 18 of them to AIDS. Uh. It wiped out an entire generation. Yeah. If you if you didn't live it, you didn't you don't know the, the the destruction that took place in this town in Hollywood. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. 
Um, I didn't associate this film with that at all until in recent years, just rewatching it and realizing like, oh yeah, no, there, there is a lot here. And even with just Chris Sarandon, granted the eighties is just such a peak era for having, you know, gorgeous hunks on screen, but Sarandon is just, it's almost like he's over-sexualized in, <laughs> in a way. He's gorgeous throughout from beginning to end. And you don't really see that with a lot of leading men sometimes. It's usually suave or, or heroic, but there's like a, a fetishization almost with him that I find alluring, actually, <laughs> in both this and in uh, in Child's Play. Well, Child's Play, and I also did a movie of the week with him called Stranger Within with Ricky Schroeder and Kate Jackson. Chris... <clears throat> Chris is a wonderful actor, but he's also a very sane human being. There's something very mature about Chris. And he had a love of the theater. And Chris came out, that was my first movie. And there, aren't, there weren't a lot of established actors or leading men who wanted to, to, to turn their career over to a first-time director. Mm-hmm. And so I've been... Eternally grateful to Chris Sarandon for taking a chance on me. And so therefore, you know, not only with all those reasons, that's why I've continued to work with him. I mean, I I can't speak highly enough of Chris as an actor or as a human being. Same same thing with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan Stark was with the founding of the Groundlings. Mm -hmm. You know, the because what I was doing was I was making a vampire film but also had comedic undertones, mm-hmm. you know, underneath it. So I was casting actors who could play the characters on the top, but also could get the, the chuckles, get the laughs, you know, without turning it in, certainly without turning it into an overt comedy. Because it's, it's, it's conceptually Fright Night, and it has, it has a very, very funny idea to, at, at its center which is a gonzo horror fan, which was me back in the day, becoming convinced that his next door neighbor is a vampire. (laughs) Well, there's something amusing about that. You know, you grin when you hear that. So it was how to, and I I was also playing with, you know, the one of the ways I've always thought to, to, to take a fantastical situation and make it believable for the audience is to have one of the characters involved in the situation say, hey, that's ridiculous, that's impossible, yeah. that can't happen. You can't have a vampire next door. You can't have a doll come alive. And I, I started doing that with Cloak and Dagger, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen that film, oh, yeah. where, nobody, where, where nobody, nobody believes the, the character in trouble. It takes away a safe space, which, which hopefully allows the audience to identify more with the with the character's plight, but it also gives it a reality. Mm-hmm. And somehow you say you say to yourself as a, as a viewer, well, I, I wouldn't believe that either. So th- so this is real. You know, the next thing you know, you're, you're believing that there is a vampire next door or a killer doll in the living room. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so timeless. It's a protagonist that keeps on, you know, coming back. I'm giving myself a plug. I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing the sequel novel to to Fright Night. It's I was going to ask Fright about that. Fright Night to, yeah. Uh, yeah, Colden Resurrection, Jerry's Resurrection. The the. I tell me why do you think it's become timeless? Because what what started to happen is that all of a sudden I started to realize that that Fright Night had become the film 
that the, the grandparents shared with their grandchildren. <laughs> you know, it's become multi-generational. That, that, and I don't, I, I mean, I, I certainly never expected it to happen, Michael. You know, and I'm eternally grateful and thrillingly surprised. But I, as near as I can tell, it's engendered, it's a safe horror film or mm-hmm. it's a fun horror film. Or it's a way to introducing your kids to horror that now feels safe. And when I did that film in 1984, it was an R rating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now it probably would be at the worst of PG-13. But it, it's, it's, it's unlike anything else, I guess, except for Child's Play, Chucky. You know, the, the, it, it's permeated, the, the, the Fright Night has permeated the popular culture. It's a much safer film than Child's Play. I wouldn't show Child's Play to, to, a, to, a, to a five or six-year-old, even oh, though yeah. I had people tell me they, they've done it and not been horrified. <laughs> Happened to me, yeah. <laughs> but you could, uh, okay, but you could show Fright Night, mm-hmm. you know, to a, to, a, to, a, to a young adolescent now, and, you know, and, and it would, you'd, feel, you'd feel safe doing it. So I, I think that's what's happened. What do you think? Why do you think we're, we're sitting here talking 35 years later about a film? I think it's because you treated the teens like adults. I just had a conversation about this with someone about like the concept of YA. And I think one of the things I don't like about so many YA or young adult novels and stories is that they often just only treat the YA, the young adult as kids that, you know, they, they don't allow the realities and the sort of uh, horror and terror to seep in. And I think what I love about Fright Night is that, yeah, it is fun and it is punchy and it's catchy. And I think it's, it's, it's quote unquote safe enough to show uh, young audiences, but there's a, there's a sliver of, of reality in it and the consequences that happen to all the characters. And especially with Ed is gripping and, and very visceral. I think it's enough to go, yes, horror is a very dangerous genre. Here's a little bit of the danger, but here's enough of the coziness to get you in and realize that this is a really fun place as well. But it's allowing that danger to exist. And so much of the the movies that are often marketed to kids that are under the kind of quote unquote horror comedy or horror uh, banner or, you know, children's horror, they don't have that. They don't have that sense of danger. And yet that's a big part of being a teenager. And I think, so it's been, it's very real about what the audience is at. And I think that that realness is what has made it endure all these years, if that makes any sense. Sorry, (laughs) I didn't mean to ramble there. Yes, thank you. It does. That was real because I was writing about my experiences Mm -hmm. as a as a as a as a horror fan when I was a, a teenager and, and back when I was coming up, there was you know the, there was AIP and there was Hammer. First there was Hammer and Christopher Lee and you know Peter you know Peter uh, Peter Peter oh Christ Peter Finch Peter who Peter who Peter, Peter Cushing, Cushing yes yes God I just watched him the other day <laughs> that's that's why Peter Vincent that's why the name mm-hmm. but that's all the horror that there was. And EC Comics. Ooh, yeah. And when I was coming up, they banned EC Comics. And, you know, you, you passed them around, you know, surreptitiously. And there were very, very few people that I, few kids in high school that I remember that liked horror, fantasy, science fiction as much as I did. So what, what Fright Night is, 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 is the, is, is, 
is the is my growing up being a horror fan when it was when everybody looked at you like you were strange, you know? Yeah. And it, they thought you were nuts. This is previous to Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Because what I've always thought Stephen King did is Stephen King made horror safe for the for the for the middle class. Mm-hmm. Stephen King was the one who really opened up the genre with his novels. Yeah. And you know, and he did that by one of the ways he did that was by taking and mentioning uh, all kinds of things that we found in our in our in our common life in mm-hmm. those days. You know, uh, he'd refer to you know you know things you ate and you know and and, and just all kinds. You know, he rooted it in the reality of the time for yep. everybody because prior to Stephen. It, 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 it horror novels or, or you went to short stories they were they were all sort of victorian like mm-hmm. eight, like late 1800s early 1900s and nobody really opened it up you know into the into the into the culture until Stephen. yeah so you know uh and that all came together and i was fright night is really my my ode to my growing up as a horror fan when I was quite lonely, you know, it wasn't in the popular culture yet. Yeah. And I loved all those horror movie hosts. I mean, I had the idea to Fright Night off of writing Cloak and Dagger, and which was, which was supposedly a remake of The Window, which was the Cornell Woolrich juvenile version of Real Window. Cornell Woolrich was, was a writer, another the name that's forgotten, but a wonderful, brilliant writer mm-hmm. has something like thirty movies made off of his, off of his short stories and books. But the the it was lonely being a horror movie fan in nineteen fifty nine, nineteen sixty, sixty one, sixty two. You know, yeah. But it started. It really, it, yeah. But it really opened up with you know back in, I guess. 73 when Stephen came out with uh Carrie. Yeah. The uh and then it then it's growing but I I you know I it's it's almost like the fandom where it is now is just amazing. I was with I went and I did a podcast yesterday with Danielle Harris. Oh wow. And nice. We spent, I don't know two or three hours. Yeah, we spent two or three hours together talking about 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 this on that one we were running child's play. But, you know, the, the, she grew up in it and had no, she couldn't conceive of the fact that, that there was a time when, when horror was, you know, was looked down upon, was, mm-hmm. was a, was a genre that, that nobody wanted to do. You have to remember, you, you, you don't remember because you didn't live it. So I'm telling you, because I experienced it. But in 1984, vampires were dead, dead, dead. Mm-hmm. And that's not a play on words. The genre was, 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 was nobody wanted to touch vampires. It had a huge disaster with the musical Dracula starring Frank Langella in the film and, and on Broadway. It's been a huge success on Broadway. It was a disaster as a film. I think Robert Wise had directed it. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you had Love at First Bite with George Hamilton, which was a comedy. And so farce. And when, when they start making farce, off of the genre, it's that over. means the genre is really tired. Yep. You know, I'm waiting for somebody to make a to make a farce off of killer dolls. Now, that hasn't happened yet. But when but when that happens, that means yeah, you have to pause and take a breath. 
and somebody has to reinvent it. Mm-hmm. And I was blind lucky that, you know, that, that, that Fright Night, at least I think, reinvented the vampire genre. Don't you just love the guy? God, what a pro. What a pro. Well, if you'd like a little longer of a chat with Holland, you should check out my conversation with him for the Losers Club. Uh, back in 2018, we had a chance to talk about his incredibly underrated adaptation of Finner, and we went deep into the world of Stephen King. So that's worth a listen. But then again, who has the time? Especially when you're a fan of our podcast. We just keep giving you all that fresh content. I mean, the last week alone, we delivered our first mailbag episode, which we call Trick and Treats, Tricks and Treats. Uh, our first Halloween commentary track for our Patreon users, which you can find over at www.patreon.com slash Halloweenyspod. And this year, Chat with Holland. Uh, you can say it's been a hell of a spooky season, but look, we wouldn't have it any other way here at Halloweenies. And rest assured, these treats are going to keep on coming long after the gourds go back to the ground. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd like some treats ourselves. So if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we, we, we love, love to read those reviews and we like to share them too. So, you know, hey, who knows? Maybe you'll be on our socials, which again, you should follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You might see us share those reviews and you'll make our day. So um, until we make your day next time, uh, what's our send off? Oh, yes. <laughs> kill, kill, kill. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, Justin does a better job at that. Anyway, deal with it. Consequence Podcast Network. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.